Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, I'll be joined by David Crow, our banking editor from Davos, Laura Noonan, our US banking editor from New York, and also by Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. And our guest this week is Brian Moynihan, chief executive of Bank of America. This week, we'll be talking about Davos and the latest financial news from the World Economic Forum. Also, our interview with Brian Moynihan. And finally, JP Morgan. Is it moving to Paris? First to Davos, we're joined down the line from the ski slopes by David Crow, our banking editor. David, thanks very much for making the time. Tell us, what is the main theme of this year's gathering of the bigwigs of finance, policymaking and business? Hi, Patrick, and greetings from a very busy, very loud Congress centre in Davos. It's still very early days, but I think one of the main themes this year is going to be climate and sustainability. Now, that is in part because the organisers of the World Economic Forum want it to be. Greta Thunberg, the 17-year-old climate activist and in some senses a standard bearer for the green agenda, has been on stage today asking delegates to take the climate emergency seriously. And you'll remember that Larry Fink, the chief executive of fund management giant BlackRock, in a sense set the tone for this meeting by pledging big changes to his business to focus more on sustainable investment. That included things like cutting big polluters that derive a big chunk of their revenues from thermal coal, for instance, from its active portfolios. But not everyone here is singing from the same song sheet. Earlier today, Mike Corbett, the CEO of Citibank, spoke on a panel and he said his bank would take a more nuanced approach, working with companies to help them become more sustainable, using the carrot, if you like, without beating them with a stick, as he put it. Let's hear a bit of what he had to say. We've actually been introducing outcome-based financing, where the actual cost of your financing will be based on what your actual carbon emissions is at a certain point in time. So getting the stick right in terms of the right benchmark pricing and then creating the right outcomes. And certainly as a financial institution, what I say to our clients is I don't want to be the sharp end of the spear, meaning I don't want to have to be the ones telling you or enforcing standards in your industry or in your business. You should set those, you get proper buy-in, and we'll be here to support you. Where we don't want to find ourselves is, is being the person that starts to dictate winners and losers. A bank's job is to support the communities in which it operates. It's not to dictate outcomes. So I think it shows that there is going to increasingly be a divergence on this issue between banks, fund managers and other financial services companies that want to cut polluters off from the global financial system like the Netherlands lender ING, for instance, which has said it might have to unbank some polluting customers. 
And then there are those, like Mr Corbett, who think that it is not the banking industry's job to police the climate, who think that that job should fall instead to policymakers, shareholders, customers, regulators, and so on. Finally, David, aside from climate and sustainability, what other themes are on the agenda? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of soul-searching about negative rates in the Eurozone and lower rates elsewhere in the global economy. We had another set of lacklustre earnings from UBS this morning, predominantly because of its struggling investment bank, but also because negative rates in Switzerland are hurting its net interest income. My sense is that bank CEOs accept that negative rates are going to be here for the medium to long term, despite their best efforts to convince central bankers that low profitability in the banking industry is bad for the real economy. So you're going to hear a lot less about battered margins and more about the long game, about the need for governments to take fiscal measures on spending and tax to boost the European economy. Well, enjoy the ski slopes, David. Thank you very much for that. Let's move on to our second topic now. And a few days ago, Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, and Rob Armstrong, our US finance editor, sat down with Brian Moynihan, the chief executive of Bank of America, to talk about what he's learnt during his time at the top and also what the plans are for Bank of America going forward. One of the most interesting areas for discussion was around the booming share prices of US banks, especially when compared to those in Europe. Bank of America's stock is up about 20% over the past year. But despite that impressive performance, it still lags the industry leader, JP Morgan. So Laura and Rob asked Brian Moynihan what that meant, how he judged himself against his competitors. Was Bank of America actually getting left behind? I look at what we've done and our stock price performance has been 135, you know, up from the industry. And so there's a couple of us that have performed very well, frankly, in the last five years. But we had an additional problem at the beginning is that the holes put in the company's uh, capital base from a pure calculation basis. And from the risk parameters we had required us to you know, issue a lot more shares. And that's why our share reduction is a critical part of uh, restoring the overall profitability of our company. So the market cap's gone from, say, $150 billion to $330 billion. We've earned $130 billion over the decade. We've returned $100 billion of it to shareholders and share buybacks and dividends. And we've reduced the share count from $11.5 billion at the peak to under nine now. And until we get that dynamic completely back, then that's why we have momentum. Even a year where our earnings are relatively flat last year's fourth quarter, this year's fourth quarter, our EPS is up. And that's because that is part of our shareholder value proposition. And you can go back and look at the first presentations we made, which is we have to, A, get the capital to the fortress balance sheet, and then, B, once we get there, we can grow what we call within ourselves. So we're joined now by Laura. Thanks very much for joining us, Laura. What did you make of this comment from Brian Moynihan? He's clearly a little bit sensitive about the idea that JP is taking all the spoils and they're very much playing second fiddle. What's your thought? Are they getting left behind? So if we look at it on a net income basis or on a shareholder return basis, certainly JP Morgan Chase has done better than Bank of America on most fronts if we look at the last decade or so. And JP Morgan Chase has also really succeeded in creating a narrative that it is the truly strong US bank to emerge from the financial crisis. That isn't to say that Bank of America is losing to Chase on all fronts. I mean, Bank of America is the biggest digital bank in the US. It's the biggest small business lender and it has the number one deposit share in the US. So let's hear another clip now. This is Brian Moynihan's statement of his ambition around growth and particularly the scope for expanding their consumer banking operations. We are in organic growth mode. 
you know, the easiest thing to talk about is consumer market share because people can sort of relate to that because they're all consumers. You know, we're the largest consumer banking franchise in the United States, uh, largest small business franchise, largest you know, commercial money in the United States, and yet our market shares, you know, in consumer are probably 12, 13, 14% depending on who counts them. The reality is, you know, you could double that. This business made $13 billion over time if you just get after it. So, Laura, what do you make of this plan for growth? Is it realistic? So one surprising feature of the US bank earnings every quarter is that the biggest banks have been continuing to gain share. And that's even as we see lots of new banks launching in the space, particularly digital banks. The biggest banks have continued to really tighten their grip. So I think Brian's point is that that's something we're going to continue to see and that there's also still a lot of market share to be gained, given that the market shares of the top banks are actually quite small relative to other industries. So I think it's fair to say that that the market share will grow. Whether it will double, I think that's probably a bit of a stretch. He didn't give any time frame for that, but I think even over the longest time frame, I would personally be surprised if they manage to double because the big US banks are constrained in their growth. It's not like they can grow by just going out and buying something. It can't. So I think doubling it is going to be quite ambitious. And then finally, Laura, you talked a lot, I think, to Mr Moynihan about what he's learned from the past 10 years or so since the crisis how he ensures that his, as he called them, his teammates keep in mind all the lessons that should have been learned from the crisis. What did he have to say on that exactly? I think what Brian and a lot of Wall Street chief executives and other senior executives are concerned about is that as the crisis becomes an older memory and as there are fewer people working in the banks who have been through it or been through any kind of a downturn, the institutional memory is lost and that can affect decision making and that can affect how people view risk. So if you think about someone, there are people working in the US banking industry who've worked in the industry for 10 years and have only known economic growth. I mean, you can learn about it in the history books, you can learn about it from your econ class, but it's not the same as actually seeing the loans turn bad, seeing the borrower who you lent money to for a small business facing bankruptcy, trying to restructure those loans. So I think one of the fears is that because the US has been economically in particular so good for so long, it's very important to try to keep the new wave of US bankers grounded in the fact that actually things can go wrong and when they do, this is how we cope with them. That's great, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, let's move on to our third item of the day. And we're joined now by Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent down the line. Stephen, JP Morgan has made an interesting bit of news this week by announcing the purchase of a new building in Paris. This is all Brexit related. Does this mean they're moving their European headquarters out of London? Well, not quite. This is what investment banking terms they call optionality, which is a horrible word. But basically, they have bought the office next to the one they have already in the first arrondissement, giving them room for an extra 450 people on top of the 230 they already have in Paris. Now, this is interesting because these will be potentially the sales and trading team for any products denominated in euros. So it looks like Paris is becoming a much bigger part of their plans than initially. We must still emphasize that Paris as a European office is currently the fourth biggest. There are 10,000 people in London, there are 500 people in Luxembourg and 450 people in Frankfurt already. So if they fill this out, it will become the second largest office and their European trading hub. But they have said that they're waiting to see what happens during this transition period, which will kick off from the end of this month, just to see what kind of financial deal is struck between 
the UK and the European Union, what kind of market access will be retained from the city of London? Because obviously, the fewer people they have to move, the fewer computer systems they have to transfer across, the cheaper it is for them, which is ultimately their goal. There's an obvious parallel here, isn't there, with Bank of America, which probably around about a year ago now started the move of a substantial number, 400 or so sales and trading people out of London, or at least they set up around 400 new people in Paris, many of whom did transfer from London. Is that the model here? Well, yes, it certainly looks like Paris is rapidly emerging as the winner, at least in terms of trading from Brexit. We know about the well-documented difficulties of persuading American and other investment bankers from moving from London to less large metropolitan cities such as Frankfurt and Zurich. And it looks like Paris is the best situation for most of these banks with the right mix of sort of culture, infrastructure, and an increasingly business-friendly attitude. We know President Macron was instrumental in persuading Bank of America, Citigroup, and BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, to locate more of their operations in Paris after Brexit. And he continues to make positive noises. JP Morgan announcement of the new office building purchase actually came alongside a raft of other companies announcing investments in Paris, including Total, the big energy company, which has moved its entire treasury operations from London to Paris, specifically citing the increased cost of operating from London after Brexit. So it looks like JP Morgan is really following a wider trend, not just in financial services, but in all business, in picking Paris as kind of a place to do the trading and sales, at least in financial markets for the future. Yes, it clearly helps, doesn't it, when your president is a former investment banker himself. Thank you very much. Well, that's all for this week. And also from me, that's it as your host of Banking Weekly. We'll be joined for the next few weeks by Matthew Vincent, my colleague. In the meantime, I just wanted to say thank you very much to David, Laura and Stephen and also to Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. And thank you so much for listening for all of these years. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.